What's going on, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. I'm super excited to welcome Dr. David Perlmutter to this episode of The Genius Life. Dr. Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist, a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, and the author of the New York Times best-selling books, Brain Maker and Grain Brain, which is available now for pre-order in its revised and updated five-year anniversary edition. In this powerful episode of the show, you're going to learn how sugar, grains, and gluten may be contributing to inflammation, the cornerstone of many chronic diseases burdening society today. You're going to discover what Dr. Perlmutter thinks of calorie counting and why all calories aren't created equal from the perspective of your health or your weight. You're going to learn about blood tests to get, which may serve as biomarkers for better brain health as you age, the link between diabetes and Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. You're going to hear his protocol for ketosis, including his latest feelings on exogenous ketone supplements like MCT oil. And that's just scratching the surface, I promise. What I love about David is that he's so passionate about this topic, stemming from his years spent as a practicing neurologist in Naples, Florida. You can even tell at times that he gets a little choked up when talking about conditions like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, which afflict millions of people and to this day have no cure. And so I feel like this is one of those episodes of the show that you're going to want to listen to again and again. Mark my words. And guys, please, if it moves you or if you feel like anybody that you know, maybe it's a loved one or a friend, can benefit from the content of this episode, please take a moment and share it. Send the link to them. Post it on social media. Do not underestimate your ability to make a difference in the life of someone else. Now, before we get to the show, I want to give a shout out to one of my favorite beverages, and that is coffee. Coffee has become something so embedded in many of our morning rituals that it becomes easy to overlook the fact that it's actually quite a healthy beverage. It's one of America's top sources of dietary polyphenols, and it's been found to encourage a cellular cleanup process known as autophagy. Part of this has to do with the fact that coffee has been shown to enhance inhibit mTOR, or mammalian target of rapamycin, which is a key gatekeeper to this longevity-associated process. In English, what that means is coffee is likely to be very good for you. Now, of course, individual mileage may vary, but if you do choose to consume coffee, well, my favorite brew as of late is produced by a company called Four Sigmatic. Their coffee is organic, and they come in instant coffee packets, where they're also combined with lion's mane, which is a mushroom that has been shown to promote neuroplasticity in the brain. Neuroplasticity, which you're going to learn a lot about over the course of the next hour with um, Dr. Perlmutter, is critically important to the aging brain. And lion's mane achieves this effect on neuroplasticity in part by boosting levels of nerve growth factor in the brain. So it's a great product. It's one of my daily staples. And if you go to foursigmatic.com max or use promo code max, you can save 15% off of any of the products on their website. But I definitely recommend checking out their Lion's Mane Coffee, which, again, combines both coffee and Lion's Mane Mushroom. All right, guys. Well, I'm super excited to get into this very important discussion with Dr. Perlmutter. Again, please share this episode on social media. Add your favorite quote. Tag Dr. Perlmutter and I. That would be super duper appreciated. And if you want to go the extra mile, leave a rating and review for The Genius Life on iTunes. All right. Without further ado, here's Dr. P. Well, Dr. David Perlmutter, thank you so much for being with me. This is exciting. Well, I'm delighted to be with you. I miss you, Max. I have to tell you, we're, we used to spend some time together down here. It was, it was all good. We did. Well, I'm, you know, you're one of the few people that I get to call, you know, both a friend and a mentor and somebody who I'm a, a really big fan of. I mean, you know, your work for me just personally, you know, before we begin the interview, um, at a time when I was really uh, facing numerous instances of what I've come to call diagnose and adios, you know, in going through the medical, the mainstream establishment establishment with my mom and then stumbling upon your work, really bridging the world of functional medicine and neurology. I mean, it was like, a, you know, it was like a light bulb for me um, in many ways. And I hear what you're saying. And, you know, I think it's the unfortunate case with many people is they don't fully recognize the limitations of so-called modern medicine until they're suddenly uh, thrust into it and have to you know, see what it's really about and then realize that in so many places, especially as it relates to neurology, there's not a lot going on. So uh, you're correct. Well, I want to you know, take a step back because you, you know, the first edition of Grain Brain um, came out five years ago now, and uh, we're celebrating its five-year anniversary. But, you know, what 
compelled you to write that book five years ago? Great question. Uh, at that time, I was really deep into uh, using uh, all kinds of integrative approaches in uh, my practice with uh, patients with challenging diseases, really wanting to have more tools in the toolbox. And I was very much aware of certain trends that were becoming very, very obvious. They were that, for example, uh, many of my patients had issues with blood sugar, that diabetes was really uh, helping to propel them into the place of neurodegenerative conditions. Uh, and, you know, that's a modifiable uh, life choice. And so I really began to explore those relationships between elevated blood sugar and risk, for example, for dementia. And they had been published. They had been published in well-respected journals like the New England Journal of Medicine. And we began to review the literature as it related to uh, the, the exposure to gluten and how that could be responsible for issues that went well beyond the intestine and could involve the brain. Uh, things like headache and movement disorders and cognitive decline, brain fog, you name it, uh, were being discussed in relationship to gluten exposure in people without celiac disease. So... You know, these are the, the fundamental tenets of, of grain brain, the fact that uh, eating a lot of carbs, eating a lot of sugar would raise your blood sugar uh, with the correlative studies showing a strong relationship to brain degeneration and uh, the gluten story as well. And I decided to do my very best to deeply explore those relationships in a way that a reader could embrace this information and make changes in his or her life so they wouldn't be faced with an incurable diagnose and adios situation. So, you know, my, my goal was to bring the notion of preventive medicine to the field of neurology and, and brain health. And, you know, frankly, that hadn't been done. Nobody would ever talk about lifestyle choices and how they might affect the brain and write a book about it. And it was time to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, in 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 so many ways, you were prescient. You presented a you know an incredibly strong hypothesis supported by lots and lots of peer reviewed literature. And and even since the publication of Grain Brain five years ago, the research has continued to validate the ideas that you had set forth in that book. And I want to talk a little bit about those ideas. But you just began to allude to kind of how you were trained as a neurologist, going through the the you know the traditional quote unquote system. How are neurologists typically trained to look at complex neurological conditions? I'll tell you that it, it unfortunately extends well beyond neurology. The paradigm, and, and I say that because, I mean, here, uh, my son, our son is, has just completed his uh, internal medicine residency and is now a board certified, uh, board certified internal medicine. And same thing, uh, that is you know, doctors are trained, as was I, to recognize a problem as quickly as possible, uh, name it, and write a prescription for it, and then see the next patient. I mean, the the amount of time that this system allows for there to be any meaningful interaction that goes beyond the prescription is is extremely curtailed. Uh, you know, the the notion that we should have a system that allows us to interact with our patients and understand not the disease they have, but who the patient is who has the disease. We just, you know, the system doesn't allow for that to talk about sleep and exercise and diet and uh, to understand the importance of these variables in creating the illness in the first place. Our current Western medical model is designed to not let that happen, but yet fosters the notion that everybody needs drugs, drugs for one, drugs for all. And, uh, you know, doctors have to put through an awful lot of patients during their typical workday. And the fastest way to make that happen is simply just to write a prescription and say adios to that patient, next patient comes in. So the system in that regard is flawed because uh, from a number of perspectives, if we could spend more time with patients and understand what's going on in their lifestyle choices, if physicians were trained to interpret that information, and if remuneration wasn't based on put through of patients, uh, then we would be saving an awful lot of time and money. And our uh, healthcare provision would not be uh, as taxed as it currently is. 
Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia, is a massive economic drain. And the currently approved pharmaceutical treatments for it are, I mean, minimally effective, if at all. Well, I'm going to say not effective. I mean, uh, there was a very interesting uh, report that came out in the journal Neurology uh, in December, December 27th of, of uh, 2017. And it uh, was a guidelines recommendation for uh, what practicing neurologists should do, put out by our most well-respected journal, that is the Journal of the American Academy of Neurology. That's the group that says you're a board-certified neurologist. And it is a, a study that looked at all the potential treatments, not even for Alzheimer's, but for the uh, what comes before Alzheimer's. We call that mild cognitive impairment, the harbinger for trouble down the road. So this is what you should do as a practicing neurologist when you see a patient with mild cognitive impairment and you know very well that patient in the next couple of years is going to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. The family, the patient are looking at you, doc, what can we do? Now, this study looked at 14 different interventions. Uh, the drugs that were looked at, not one of them, not one of them did they recommend except for one. Uh, that was called exercise. Believe it or not, wow. the journal Neurology in the guidelines and the recommendations for doctors in terms of what you could recommend to a patient to slow down his or her progression to full-blown Alzheimer's disease was exercise. Now, uh, I, I, it takes my breath away uh, on uh, for two reasons. Number one, uh, that uh, this is you know, it's something we've been talking about for a long time. It, it takes my breath away because there is no pharmaceutical. But number two, the fact that this journal that is underwritten by pharmaceutical companies in terms of their advertisements was able to make this statement to me is absolutely breathtaking. It's extremely positive. It's validating for sure. Uh, but it, it really, it's, it's really making me focus uh, on the light as opposed to the darkness that the journal said, uh, what you got to tell your patients, by the way, yes, there's something to buy and it's called a new pair of sneakers. And, uh, that has been demonstrated with, uh, adequate, uh, validity, uh, and uh, statistical significance to reduce the rate and risk of progression to Alzheimer's disease. So it's, it is so, uh, you know, we, we obviously put that in our, uh, in our revision, the new book, uh, Grain Brain Revision, uh, and how great it is that studies are coming out saying that as a matter of fact, going low carb, reducing blood sugar, physical exercise, the value of a ketogenic diet in cognitive enhancement, for example, all of these things are ideas that the mainstream is talking about now. So it's a it's a wonderful new day. And it's great to have good news these days about things going in the right direction. I, I would just say, leave it at that. I, I couldn't agree more. What is the, the prescription for exercise, something that we can all do every day, every week? It's difficult to say. Uh, I, I think that the interventional trials that were uh, conducted by uh, Erickson and uh, his group at, uh, in collaboration with UCLA demonstrated about 140 minutes of aerobics a week. Uh, so about 20 minutes a day of aerobics was what they used in their studies. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is ideal, but they demonstrated with 20 minutes of aerobics versus simple stretching after one year – a, uh, an improvement in memory, a higher level of a growth hormone for the brain called BDNF that we'll talk about in a moment, and also increased size, not a progressive decline, increased size of the brain's memory center called the hippocampus. So, uh, you know, I'm always <laughs> a believer of if some is good, more is better, and that isn't always true. Uh, we've learned our lesson about that in many ways, but uh, I think if you can do uh, 45 minutes and incorporate stretching as well as some resistance exercise, my sense is that's going to be better uh, in the long run. Can we prove that as yet? No. Uh, but what we do know is that stretching and resistance exercises uh, have a positive effects 
uh, on their own that create a healthier body that will allow you to remain healthier longer so you can continue to exercise. So uh, I, I think we don't yet know that magic number. And truthfully, I think there are a lot of factors that are involved in the notion of personalized medicine uh, that should be taken into account when you make a recommendation uh, for an individual in terms of how long and to what level he or she should exercise. Absolutely. I love the, the, that distinction that you made that, you know, typically there is a slow decline in the volume of the brain's memory center, the hippocampus. I think it's something like 2% decrease in volume every year after a certain age, but exercise was shown to actually reverse that trend. Can you imagine? And that's exactly what their graphs from that study that I use in my presentations demonstrates. It shows that the people who were not aerobically exercise, exercising, their memory centers declined in size and their memory function declined as well in comparison to the, those involved in aerobics in whom the hippocampus actually increased in size in lockstep with raising their BDNF levels and lockstep with their improved memory function. What are you waiting for? Why don't we shout this information from the from the mountaintops? And yet we continue to see, uh, you know, doctors prescribing drugs that do not work that our journals t- are telling us are not working. We're watching advertisements on the evening news for this or that Alzheimer's drug that doesn't work. And what is so, uh, um, you know, heart wrenching is this in the uh, in the context of the fact that this is a largely preventable disease. So last year, I had the opportunity to give a talk uh, to the World Bank and International Monetary Fund that was uh, simulcasted to 50 uh, places around the, the globe about this notion that you know we're spending a trillion dollars right now globally in in taking care of Alzheimer's patients, which is what is at the market value of Apple Company. Uh, and it's a big number. Uh, and, you know, I had to talk about numbers. Here we are at the World Bank uh, for a disease that is largely preventable if people would get this message that, for example, being overweight translates to a powerful risk for dementia down the line 30 years later uh, in one study, that uh, diabetes may quadruple your risk for this disease, Alzheimer's for which there is no treatment, that there is a direct relationship between the average blood sugar, the A1C that people talk about on television, and rate at which brain size declines, far in excess of the rate at which the size of your brain declines if you happen to have inherited an Alzheimer's gene, the APOE4 allele, for example. So you can't alter the fact that you inherited a specific genetic predisposition, but you can get your A1C down immediately by changing your diet. So this is, uh, this is a message that we began to talk about in, in Grain Brain five years ago, and now we are able to bring to bear some very, very powerful science that is absolutely supportive of, of exactly what we're talking about. So talk to me a little bit about the dietary recommendations that you make in Grain Brain, um, or at least that you originally made, and then talk about maybe if those if those views have evolved over the past five years. Well, they're, they're almost the same, but they are different in a couple of respects. And uh, they're almost the same, certainly in the broad strokes of dramatically uh, reducing your carbohydrates and sugar. I mean, you know, the... Um, uh, the, the subtitle of Grain Brain is The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, Your Brain's Silent Killers. So the broad strokes were, are identical, uh, but to be more refined, we've gone deeper into more fat in the diet, less sugar, continuing carbohydrates, but talking about net carbs. So people are careful not to avoid dietary fiber, which we need. Uh, but really pushing the diet and the dietary recommendations so that people are in actual uh, ketosis uh, because we know uh, that is, A, the natural state of human uh, physiology throughout almost our entire time on this planet historically, and B, it's really, really good for the brain. Do you advocate for um, 
intermittent ketosis or round-the-clock ketosis? Well, the guiding principle, I, I think, is uh, something that changes and is right now changing. Uh, as you know, many people are talking about the notion of intermittently getting into ketosis because that actually favors uh, the body and the brain's responsiveness to the time that you are in ketosis. And I think some of that research is actually very good. Uh, by and large, most people should be in ketosis most of the time. Uh, you're going to be in ketosis when you wake up in the morning, unless you ate dinner very, very late. And right off the bat, if you don't have your meal, your first meal till noon, one or, or two o'clock in the afternoon, you've had a really good period of ketosis. What happens then is you have your first meal when you break your fast, hence the name break fast. Uh, and, but nonetheless, you know, you've gotten a good 12, 14 hours of uh, caloric restriction, uh, fasting that does amplify your body's production of ketones. But to that, we really want to talk about adding in uh, what things like uh, coconut oil, but even more effective is medium chain triglyceride oil, because that allows your body to produce ketones much more easily, even if you're not uh, fasting, and even dare I say, uh, you're not carb restricted. So just the use of MCT oil, because it amplifies the production of these really good um, uh, molecules called ketones, something very, very imp for, important for people to talk about. I mean, you know, there are books written about treating patients with Alzheimer's uh, with a ketogenic diet. So uh, now we see uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen's recent publication where the ketogenic diet, along with multiple other factors, was used in the treatment of 100 individuals with dementia, many of whom with uh, diagnosed Alzheimer's disease, in which he uh, describes reversing uh, their cognitive impairment. What a world. And uh, What a world. It is. And I just wrote a blog about uh, our friend, Dr. Bredesen, and really felt that this is Nobel Prize level work. I mean, to for the first time in history, reverse Alzheimer's disease using a program that was not one monotherapy pill, but was a 36-point program. Uh, yeah, it's not easy, but it worked. And uh, you know what? If that's what it takes, that's what we'll do. I am totally in agreement that for a, a condition as complex as Alzheimer's disease, and particularly knowing that it begins in the brain decades before the first symptom, I, I do think the kitchen sink approach is probably going to be the approach to take when it comes to, um, you know, improving uh, and even potentially "quote unquote" reversing the, um, you know, the symptoms of the condition. Uh, but for people, you know, my listeners are incredibly savvy. I'm sure many of them are familiar with your work. But I just want to go back to, you know, the ketogenic diet and ketones. Can you talk a little bit about what, like, what ketones are in the context of the brain, brain energy metabolism, and perhaps some of their, you know, their signaling uh, effects on the brain? Certainly. So ketones are these chemicals. Uh, a type of fat that is made in the liver when uh, one of three conditions exists, either a deprivation of glucose or, or carbohydrates as a uh, caloric source, uh, fasting, or when we add in precursors of ketones like MCT, medium-chain triglycerides. These medium-chain triglycerides are are fats, fatty acids that are uh, 8, 10, and 12 carbons in length. Now, what happens is the liver takes these chemicals uh, that you supply when you take MCT oil, or it will harvest fat from body fat during times of caloric restriction. It's why we make ketones when we're fasting. So body fat or dietary fat can be utilized as well uh, by the liver. Uh, the, the way that the body is able to utilize body fat through the liver is a bit more complicated uh, and less, I guess, functional. And in fact, dietary uh, long-chain fatty acids and uh, long-chain fatty acids from using our body fat are more difficult to transform into ketones. Nonetheless, uh, it can happen. These uh, uh, 
precursors are then metabolized in the liver and we create ketones. Um, and these ketone chemicals then uh, are able to do various things throughout the body. The one we really focus on is one uh, ketone in particular called beta-hydroxybutyrate. But what they serve to do is, number one, uh, they serve as fuel, particularly in humans. Uh, in the brain, they serve as what Dr. Uh, Veach many, many years ago called a brain superfuel. So they're a wonderful efficient fuel in comparison to glucose uh, for brain cells. And recent research, interestingly, has demonstrated that in uh, Alzheimer's, one of the earliest signals, in fact, or findings, when we do uh, PET scans of the brain uh, in individuals is a reduced utilization of glucose in parts of the brain. Now, this can occur in the brain long before the clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's happens. In other words, long before there is evidence of cognitive impairment. So what we see is in particular areas of the brain, particularly the temporoparietal area, decreased utilization of glucose. Now, uh, the, the thinking would be that the reason that these Alzheimer's signature areas of the brain are showing deficiencies of glucose utilization is because those neurons are failing and not using glucose anymore. And as a matter of fact, we kind of believed that for a while until some very recent research demonstrated in these individuals who have PET scans showing deficiencies of glucose utilization that when we administer ketones intravenously and do a different kind of brain scan, that measures uh, utilization of ketones, brain activity using fat as a fuel, that these neurons that we thought were deficient and not functioning are doing just fine, thank you very much, when they were given a different fuel, in this case, ketones. This is, this is revolutionary information because we had it all wrong. We thought that you know, these PET scans showing these abnormalities were showing us that these neurons were dying and, not, and uh, unrecoverable. And that's just not true. And now we see that these neurons are, are happy just because they've been given the right kind of fuel, given ketones to burn. And that now is demonstrating itself when people are suddenly coming, coming back online, when they're powering their brains with ketones. So there are books and books written about ketogenic diets. I have a stack of them on my floor here. I keep going through them for recipes and for understanding how this happens. But these ketones, even as you mentioned, beyond uh, serving as an ideal fuel for brain cells, actually, at least with respect to beta-hydroxybutyrate, do some other extremely important things. This BOB, uh, which is uh, the acronym for it, uh, is a signaling molecule. It actually changes gene expression uh, to reduce inflammation. Uh, it also binds to insulin receptors, making them more sensitive uh, to insulin. The signaling of insulin improves, which is really fundamentally important for the brain. So we're seeing a, a variety of activities of this molecule well beyond the fact that it serves as an ideal fuel for the brain. So it really uh, makes us you know, it's a bit of a paleo argu argument because it's hard to imagine that our paleo ancestors could have had such widespread uh, dementia in their populations and uh, could have survived uh, to make us who we are today. You know, Gary Taubes, who has written so much about dietary sugar, indicated that ketosis was probably the normal state for our paleolithic ancestors. And in fact, you know, until the development of agriculture some uh, 10 to 12,000 years ago, we didn't have carbohydrates. We were probably in ketosis most of the time. So well said. I think it's so important to underscore the fact that, um, you know, the brain's utilization of ketones is supply driven. So whenever you have ketones in circulation, whether it's from your ketogenic diet, perhaps, or even these exogenous ketone supplements, which have now hit the, mar hit the market, 
you're going to be able to, the brain is going to use the ketones that are in circulation in, in lockstep correlation with their, their level in, in the blood. You are exactly right that the, uh, the levels of ketones uh, in the brain absolutely reflect the levels, in the keto- uh, levels of ketones in the blood, uh, that they cross the blood-brain barrier uh, wonderfully, and that you can immediately, uh, you know, it's not as if in the starving state, then we create these ketones and glucose is no longer available. But we can not be starving. We can enjoy wonderful nutrition uh, and yet increase our ketone availability to the brain by using exogenous uh, sources uh, of these medium-chain triglycerides. You're exactly right. So let's talk a little bit about um, the dietary uh, recommendations, you know, when it comes to the the foods that we're eating that are going to help supply ketones to the brain. And in the first printing of Grain Brain, you really rail against uh, our grain-based diets, you know, like the idea that the Mediterranean diet, which has been endorsed by the medical establishment, is somehow a grain-based low-fat diet. Uh, you really tear that notion apart. So can we talk a little bit about, about that? Sure. And, you know, what, uh, what the fossil record would indicate that, as I mentioned before, between 10 and, 10 and 12,000 years ago, there was a sudden decline in human stature. Uh, and whereas uh, hominids' uh, brain size over 2 million years had increased threefold, suddenly, uh, since 10 to 12,000 years ago, the size of the human brain has decreased uh, some 10%. So something uh, has changed, and uh, you know it, it, the the only change that we can uh, ascribe this to is a change. Our genetics haven't changed, our genome hasn't changed, but what has changed has been the types of foods that we consume. Suddenly, with the advent of agriculture, we were eating seeds of grass, and uh, the you know we uh, then have seen that this has spread around the entire globe. So, uh, you know, humans have been absolutely domesticated by wheat. Wheat did a great job uh, taking humans as, uh, you know, to to domesticate uh, and and spread themselves around the globe. This is a food that is highly addictive, that contains uh, chemicals in it that stimulate the brain like morphine. Uh, These are foods whose derivatives are very, very high in uh, simple carbohydrates, giving us that sugar surge which amplifies sudden surges of dopamine into our reward centers. So we want more and more, can never get enough. That surge in dopamine leads to the production of endogenous morphine-like chemicals within the brain. So in a very uh, real sense, we get addicted to these high uh, simple carbohydrate foods. So you know the the notion that uh, our diet should be seventy uh, percent carbohydrate uh, and the rest protein and fat is uh, historically uh, it comes to in great conflict with what we've eaten for ninety nine point five percent of our time on this planet. We never did a diet like that, but yet to this day, if you go on the the sites uh, of the American Diabetic Association, even in the American Heart Association, uh, they're talking about you know, five teaspoons of sugar not, uh, for women, nine teaspoons of sugar uh, per, for men a day are considered okay. It's It really absolutely takes your breath away. Now, when looking, you mentioned the Mediterranean diet. And, you know, there are some good things about the Mediterranean diet. It's absolutely not a grain-based, low-fat diet. Not at all. I mean, this is a diet that welcomes lots and lots of olive oil, olives, nuts, and seeds to the table. Uh, do Does the diet have, uh, Mediterranean diet have some grain in it? You bet it does. But by and large, compared to the standard American diet, the sad diet that people eat here, the Mediterranean diet is leaps and bounds better. And that diet can even be improved, as was uh, documented in the PREDIMED study, by adding even higher levels of fat the dreaded fat that for so many years we were told to avoid like the plague, turns out to be associated when it's consumed in higher amounts with a remarkable decreased risk of Alzheimer's and things like breast cancer, provided it's the right kind of fat. In the PREDIMED study, it was nuts and seeds or uh, olive oil. A liter of olive oil 
per patient per week, which seems like a lot, but I do it myself and it, it really isn't. I was at your home in Naples <laughs> and we cooked a few meals. You remember that? It's actually I remember documented I made, for the- I made for... breakfast for you. We covered the eggs <laughs> with olive oil. I do it to this day and I'm happy that I do. And I love olive oil. Do you hold back at all? I mean, do you, do you, are you ever concerned about calories or anything no. like that? No. Cal, you know, <laughs> to this day, you look at weight loss programs and they have these low calorie this and that. It's meaningless. You know, it, that stems from the mentality that uh, to lose weight, it has to be more calories out than calories in. End of story. Right. Uh, if you burn more calories than you take in, by all means, you're going to lose weight. And that just is patently wrong. Why do we know that? Because, you know, that mentality uh, stems from the notion that there's no difference in a calorie between a fat calorie and a carb calorie. And truthfully, nothing could be further from the truth. Because these foods that are delivering these calories are sending signals to our metabolism and are sending signals to our DNA. So that uh, the, the, where these calories are coming from matters a whole heck of a lot. When our bodies suddenly get loaded up with carb calories, it's, it tells your body, my body, that winter is coming. Because that was the signal in our hunter-gatherer days. We would never have carbs until the fruit ripened at the end of the summer. And suddenly this, uh, the, the sugar in our bodies would say winter is coming, make and store fat. Uh, as opposed to fat, consuming dietary fat is a signal that you are living in a place of caloric abundance so that your need to store fat uh, is no longer uh, as high as it would be at other times of the year. And that's really very important when we look at the data that confirms a very powerful relationship between uh, size of the abdomen and risk for Alzheimer's disease 30 years down the line. So a, a powerful study that was begun in the 1960s that measured sagittal abdominal diameter and followed people for 30 years and found that those people 30 years ago who had the biggest amount of belly fat had a dramatically increased risk for Alzheimer's disease three decades later. So the point I'm making is, yeah, the lifestyle choices that Max Lugavere makes today are important for you and your generation. Because when you get to be my age, you will wish uh, I, you know, that, that you would have done what I know you are doing today. And that is behaving this way, exercising, eating more fat, cutting your carbs, being careful to avoid gluten, making sure you're getting the right nutrients and vitamins, checking things like homocysteine, measuring your inflammatory markers, keeping your hemoglobin A1C low, your insulin level low, your fasting blood sugar low, checking your ketone levels. Uh, another incredible study was published in the journal Neurology 2017. And this was a study that similarly uh, looked at 1,600 uh, participants and measured blood tests for in what are called inflammatory markers. And this, was te this test was done decades ago. They came back and looked at these individuals 24 years later. And what they found was that those individuals who had the highest level of these blood markers of inflammation 24 years ago had the greatest reduction in the size of their brains and also the greatest reduction in brain functionality as measured by what's called episodic memory. So again, and uh, doing things that are increasing inflammation in your body today is setting the stage for decline of brain size and brain functionality decades down the line. So that's the message to uh, any of the millennials who are listening to this podcast. You got to make these changes uh, today because you're going to be in your 50s and 60s before you know it. It'll happen in the blink of an eye, I can tell you. Uh, from personal experience, the time speeds up the older you get. What is causing all this inflammation that we worry about? Elevated blood sugar, uh, increased body fat, powerful causes of inflammation. Blood sugar elevation, 
binds to protein. It's a process we call glycation, and that leads to inflammation. How do you know if that process is happening? You get a simple blood test called A1C. That's a marker of blood sugar binding to protein and is an indirect way of measuring inflammation in your body today, right now at the doctor's office. What are the biggest instigators of inflammation? I mean, you've already touched on the packaged processed foods that are usually made with refined grains. Do you talk at all about uh, oils and the various oils that have now, you know, industrial oils that have that have saturated our food supply? <laughs> I like the throwing in of the word saturated. That was very clever. Um, but that said, uh, yes. And, uh, you know, clearly that's, that's extremely important, you know, to be sure as we're talking about the importance of adding good fat, uh, to your diet. We're not talking about uh, sunflower oil, safflower oil, corn oil, or any of these other oils that you'll find on the grocery store shelf that may be on that shelf for three years uh, and have been so aggressively modified so as to increase their shelf life. These oils are dramatically pro-inflammatory, high in the pro-inflammatory omega-6 fats to be contrasted with the omega-3s, which is what we want. Uh, so again, uh, a very good point, Max, and that is that when we talk about more dietary fat, it's very, very much couched in the notion that some fats are good and some are not. So we've got to be super selective about those fats. Uh, the, the fat that we consume, the amount of carbohydrates that we consume, the simple carbohydrates, and the sugar in any any of its uh, uh, myriad descriptions uh, need to be avoided. Uh, these are ways to ultimately reduce that fundamental mechanism, which is inflammation. Inflammation is the cornerstone of chronic degenerative diseases, not just of the brain, but of the body as well. Diabetes, coronary artery disease, even cancer. And in the brain, uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, autism, uh, Alzheimer's for sure. These are inflammatory disorders. There is a dramatic increased risk of Parkinson's disease in people who have diabetes. It's a study that uh, came out uh, in July of this year in England. They looked at 2 million diabetics, comparing them to 6 million controls. Uh, and this was published again in the journal Neurology. What did they find? That uh, if you were diabetic, especially if you were a younger diabetic, type 2, your risk for Parkinson's, a degenerative condition of the brain, was amplified dramatically. If you were uh, younger and type 2 diabetic between the ages of 25 and 44, for example, your risk for developing Parkinson's disease was increased almost fourfold. So uh, this is a way of increasing inflammation by becoming diabetic and increasing your risk of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's heart disease, cancer, you name it. You've been quoted as having said that gluten is our uh, generation's tobacco. I don't know where that quote uh, came from, but those are harsh words. Yep. And so, you know, I want to talk a little bit about gluten, the potential threat that it may pose to the brain, its impact on the digestive tract, and, you know, again, how your views might have changed since you, you know, originally indicted it in grain brain. Well, uh, interesting uh, that you said the brain and also the digestive tract, and uh, that's a that's a powerful sentence because that is indeed uh, a relationship that we began to develop in Grain Brain, amplified in our discussions in Brain Maker, which really focused on the gut and gut permeability issues, and now uh, since that time has been uh, really. Uh, 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 in, integrated, I think, into the common discussion uh, in terms of inflammation and risk for, for brain issues, uh, even beyond brain degenerative conditions in terms of things like headache and even movement disorders and tics in children, uh, etc. So um, we had raised the idea back five years ago in Grain Brain of the work of a Dr. Marius Hajivasalu in uh, England who was talking about the extra-intestinal manifestations of gluten uh, sensitivity. In other words, the fact that in, in some people, it turns out to be quite a few people, uh, a large segment of the population, when they consume foods containing gluten, 
yeah, they might have issues with digestion and upset stomach, etc. But oftentimes, they may have extra intestinal or things happening elsewhere in the body. Might be the skin, might be the brain. And the fact that these issues can occur even without there being gastrointestinal uh, problems, which means that doctors should consider gluten sensitivity being the cause of certain symptoms, even in patients who don't have gastrointestinal complaints. And that's a big step. And I had some uh, personal pushback uh, in dealing with patients from a gastroenterologist who, um, interestingly, uh, I had a, a woman with chronic headaches. We took her off of gluten. Her headaches went away. She had headaches for 20 years. Uh, she's gluten-free, headache-free, sees a gastroenterologist for a routine colonoscopy. And he says to her, by the way, we did an upper endoscopy. You don't have celiac disease. You should start eating gluten again. And she did, and her headaches came back. And he said, oh, it's preposterous. Well, the poor woman was better by going gluten-free, and yet because of her ga- her endoscopy, which didn't show specifically celiac disease, she was told she should resume eating gluten. So the point is that there exists this content, this, this idea of this diagnosis of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. It is totally above and beyond apart from celiac disease. Celiac disease affects 1.4 to 1.6% of the population and has some genetic markers that really define it. Nonetheless, uh, as was recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2017, Non-celiac gluten sensitivity is absolutely uh, very real and the cause of significant uh, more uh, morbidity uh, in a very, very large segment of our population. Uh, this is what we talked about back in, in Grain Brain five years ago. Now JAMA, uh, with uh, input uh, from Dr. Alessio Fasano from Harvard and m- several other contributors, has totally validated this idea that yes, headaches, cognitive issues uh, can, can occur in relation to gluten exposure. Uh, Dr. Um, Fasano's group demonstrates how uh, gluten, and specifically part of gluten called alpha-gliadin, a protein found in gluten, increases the permeability of the gut in humans. Why does that matter to you and me for our discussion? It matters because that is a fundamental player in the production of inflammation throughout the human body, including the brain. When we recognize, as you and I have now discussed, the fundamental role of inflammation in creating Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, uh, in its relationship to chronic degenerative conditions elsewhere in the heart, for example, uh, we really have to do everything we can to keep the gut lining intact. When we see the now global literature that says gluten threatens the gut lining, it really helps substantiate our plea that people refrain or reduce their consumption of gluten. We talked about it five years ago, and now, you know, in in the new book, it's just talking about the validation that uh, these ideas have had. Wonderful. Why don't you, I mean, because you just alluded to nurturing the, that precious barrier between the interior contents of our gut, you know, the lumen and everything that makes us, us, our circulation, our brain, what are perhaps your, you know, your top three tips to nurturing gut health? Well, let me, if I may uh, preface that by just, you know, reiterating how much we depend on this 100 trillion bacteria uh, so we can be healthy and enjoy our lives and have a a good functioning brain, for example. You know, this gut-brain connection is now on the lips of everybody. In fact, uh, I'm editor of a, of a new uh, a professional book coming out called The Microbiome and the Brain. So we've lived in this relationship, this wonderful relationship with our gut bacteria uh, for as long as we have walked this planet. Uh, and everything that they do has a bearing on our health. The the vitamins that they manufacture, the role that they play in the production of neurotransmitters, the role that they play in the production of things like short-chain fatty acids that are important for brain health and function, and the role that our gut bacteria play in maintaining the integrity of the lining of the gut. That is 
It's a fundamental role. When that barrier is breached, we amp up inflammation in the body. I, I don't need to go through it again, but that's not a good thing. So what then changes or threatens or messes with our bacterial friends? Well, many things of that are related to modern lifestyle. Um, certainly the medications we're taking, clearly the antibiotics we're taking, the acid-suppressing drugs uh, change the gut bacteria dramatically and how intriguing it is uh, that uh, the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association last year published uh, two years ago, published a study demonstrating a dramatic increased risk of Alzheimer's disease in people who chronically take acid-blocking drugs. Wow. Uh, and these, <laughs> Max, these are the drugs that are advertised over-the-counter on the evening news. I mean, with all due respect, you know, when Larry the Cable Guy is telling us we should block our stomach acid, and yet our most well-respected peer-reviewed uh, literature is showing a correlation between taking those drugs and the development of Alzheimer's disease, uh, why are people not talking about that? Well, you know what? It's a correlative study. I will indicate it wasn't a causative interventional study, but... The mechanism, likely in my opinion, is one of changing of the gut bacteria, which happens profoundly when those drugs are used. It likely explains why uh, this gut issue called Clostridium difficile, which is uh, still claiming the lives of 20 to 30,000 Americans a year, you know, it's, it happens at increased rates in people taking uh, these drugs. It's not just acid-blocking drugs, but many, many other drugs have now been identified to change the gut bacteria. Even artificial sweeteners have a huge role to play in altering the gut bacteria. A study appearing in the journal Stroke last year demonstrated an increased risk of dementia, dementia of, these, of the Alzheimer's type, as well as stroke in lockstep with the amount of, uh, of these artificially sweetened beverages that people consume. So for people that believe that their diet sodas, just because they don't contain sugar, are somehow inert in their body, that's a, a misconception. Yes, say. and you said people who believe that. The reason they believe it is that's what the advertising would lead them to believe. The advertising say, you know, sugar-free. Well, that's good. I'll, I'll have that. It's sugar-free. But yet, uh, the, a French study of 80,000 women showed dramatic increased risk of obesity in, uh, uh, in a dose-dependent fashion in people who consume artificial sweeteners. Another study demonstrated dramatic increased risk of type 2 diabetes greater in people consuming the artificially sweetened beverages in comparison to sugar-sweetened beverages. Uh, that's pretty dramatic. I mean, so... We are told one thing, you know, the, the sugar-free craze right now is, is rampant, and it's exactly where we were with the low-fat, no-fat craze uh, of several decades ago. Uh, but, but I am all in favor of no sugar, but that doesn't mean the artificial sweeteners are the way to go. That's not what the science would tell us. So uh, we've got to recognize that what we are being told is not necessarily in our interest. You know, we learned that from uh, the tobacco advertisements years ago. Uh, we learned a big lesson when the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, that was uh, recapitulated in the New York Times talked to us about the influence of sugar uh, interest, sugar industry, in terms of what was published in our medical journals 30 years ago, telling, uh, telling us to stop eating fat and eating more sugar. Uh, you know, if, if, if you don't want to do anything more than ask what our ancestors did, that would be good enough to keep you healthy. I mean, that is the underlying principle uh, for the paleo movement. I understand that. Uh, but truthfully, uh, when our food and our lifestyle choices are looked upon as instructing our DNA, which they do, then that kind of validates the notion that we should do our very best to emulate what our ancestors ate. Couldn't agree more. So we, we talked about, um, you know, avoiding acid blocking medications, avoiding processed refined grains, which I know some research speculates may pose an inflammatory threat to the gut just because of their, the, the very uh, processed nature um, and form in which they appear in. And so what are, you know, what's one thing that you eat every day, perhaps that serves to boost your gut health? We've talked a little bit about 
um, the things that we're doing that are harming, you know, the bacteria that live in our gut. But what what are you, you know, what are some of the things that you eat that actually support uh, gut bacteria? I'd say that uh, I do my very best to get a lot of prebiotic fiber into my diet every day. And these are foods that give the kind of fiber you need to nurture your gut bacteria. But something that I do every day is I take a prebiotic fiber supplement that's made from two things. It's made from acacia gum and a baobab fruit. And, uh, you know, you buy it at the health food store. It's an organic product. And I make sure I take that every day. Uh, but to be sure, I get uh, dietary fiber in uh, my general nutrition as well. That is prebiotic fiber by choosing a food, jicama, uh, which is Mexican yam, uh, dandelion greens, uh, kale to some degree, garlic, onions, leeks, uh, chicory root. These are all good sources, terrific sources of prebiotic fiber. So that's something that goes into my diet every day, along with uh you know, lots of dietary, good dietary fat in the form of olive oil, uh, lots of nuts and seeds, again, for the fiber uh, and, you know, for the other things that, that they supply. But so I'd say that prebiotic fiber is in my diet every day on the days that I eat. I love that. David, you're a luminary. We're almost out of time. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question, but before I get to that, how can listeners connect with you over the internet? Um, where is your book available and when? Well, the new book, uh, which is the revised Grain Brain, is uh, already uh, became number one in Alzheimer's, dementia, and neurology on Amazon. I'm happy to say, in pre-sales, which is kind of exciting, people want this information. That will be available December the eighteenth, two thousand eighteen, uh, everywhere. Um, the uh, website for me is drperlmutter, drperlmutter.com. We have a free newsletter that goes out every week. And Facebook is David Perlmutter, MD. I don't know Instagram. I guess is uh, David Perlmutter or David Perlmutter, MD as well. Um, and I guess that's it. You know, I do my very, very best to, like you do, uh, get information out as as much as I can and and as I see it. So um, that's all part of what we need to do. Well, you're doing a fantastic job, and I, I just want to also give a shout out to your show, The Empowering Neurologist, which I had the, the privilege of being on uh, not too far back. You interview some great guests, and so people can go over to your it's your Facebook page and your YouTube page to check that out. Is that is that correct? That's that's right, The Empowering Neurologist. I should have uh, should have mentioned that, but you know, you younger guys know all about that stuff. So there you go. Thank you for that, Max. Oh, my pleasure. So the last question, uh, it's a question I ask to everybody on this podcast, and I'm super excited to hear your answer. Um, Dr. Perlmutter, what does it mean to you to live a genius life? I would say that uh, it, it is a life that is really focused, uh, it's really focused in gratitude. Uh, gratitude for... Uh, for everything around us, for this incredible life that we have, this unbelievable experience on this planet that we are privileged to participate in, this gift of this planet. So uh, from that stems, stems my desire to demonstrate uh, my gratitude and to give back, to give back in the ways that I, that I serve, and that is through what you and I just did, and that is getting out this information. But um, it's just uh, a life of moment-to-moment gratitude. And as such, uh, really uh, uh, helping people to understand what they can do to remain healthy, to be able to participate in this life, participate in this feeling of gratitude, and how they can ultimately change their brains away from uh, immediate gratification, sense of narcissism, uh, to amplify functionality in those parts of the brain that deal with planning for the future, understanding consequences of our actions, uh, dealing uh, with others in a compassionate way, and becoming more empathetic. So um, that is, to me, the uh, unparalleled genius of this life that we have 
the interrelationships that we have with other people, with all living things, uh, at the level of genetics, the interrelationship we have with our own DNA, with the diversity of organisms that live within us, with the diversity of thoughts and ideas that are so uh, that are shared around the planet, and embracing that. And I think ultimately, the key here is to embrace diversity. And when we do so, uh, we become more compassionate uh, towards each other, towards the planet, and understand that it is diversity that creates resilience. That is the genius of all that we see around us, the genius of the diversity of what goes on in and on us, the diversity of the success of life on this planet. So um, I'm grateful for that question. That was a terrific question. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for your answer, David. You are a, you're a poet, you're a philosopher, you're a wonderful scientist, and um, I'm just so privileged to get to call you a friend and to have had this conversation with you. So thank you for being on The Genius Life. And to everybody out there listening in podcast land, I really appreciate your attention and your time. Make sure to follow David um, on whatever social media platform you enjoy using most. Pick up his book. It's called Grain Brain, the five-year uh, revised edition. It was a life-changing book for me, honestly, five years ago. And it really was something that um, you know instigated, in many ways, my investigation into health and all of the things that I've learned since then. So um, check him out. David is, is wonderful. And uh, I look forward to hanging out with you in Naples at some point in the near future. Well, I, I want to cook breakfast for you again. I'd be delighted. <laughs> That would be wonderful. All right, guys. Well, thank you again for tuning in. And this has been another episode of The Genius Life. Peace.